so guy nick mason sourceful of secrets of which we are um two-fifths right are we're going back out on the road in the summer across the uk we are we're, it's all of june so brace yourself what's it called it's called the set the control store what a brilliant name who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Guy. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm very well. Looking forward to today. One of the great instigators, catalysts of crossover music. Yeah, yeah. He's, it's another producer for us to have on. But You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> no, I, no, he, he's a kind of producer artist. I mean, I remember Arthur Baker himself was virtually the only person in that New Order video, Confusion. Oh, Confusion, yeah, that's right. Uh, as funny. the producer. I mean, he... Except you occasionally see Bernard and Peter both playing the wrong instruments. I th I've thought you've been playing the wrong instrument for most of your career, haven't you, Guy? Oh. Really should have been that. That was uh, unnecessary. Ukulele player you set out to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, let's just sort of sum him up, really, and for people who maybe aren't so familiar. Africa Bombata, Planet Rock, that coming together of craft work and... Electro. He basically invented Electro, which is a kind of branch of hip-hop. And then, actually, the massive one is actually Walking on Sunshine, isn't it? Rocker's Revenge. Yeah, that version as opposed to the other song uh, as opposed to the Eddie Grant one yeah which is it's fun, which had only been a year or two before Katrina and the Waves no Eddie Grant well, there are three songs called Walking on Sunshine there's probably hundreds of songs called Walking on Sunshine when Let's Dance went to number one I remember thinking oh my god I can't believe it it took Bowie to come up with a song called Let's Dance turned out that was the eighth record called Let's Dance wow, to get wow, number one wow wow I've now had a great idea for a song Walk on Sunshine <laughs> um, it was the B-side he's not worth it yeah. <laughs> but um you know, he's worked with Bruce Springsteen. He did the first Bruce Springsteen 12-inch mixes and dance mixes, and he produced and mixed Bob Dylan. He he wrote that famous song by Freeze, I.O.U., and, I and produced yeah. that. Um, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. The whole New York scene, the beginning of the 12-inch dance mixes, um, New Order and more. And then he moved here, which is where I actually got to know him in the 90s. I mean, he was everywhere. He's just everywhere. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey, here I am. Hey, Arthur. Hello. All right. I knew you were so much a part of the London landscape. I know. I couldn't move for you back in the day. I actually really miss it. You know, I, I was there nearly 20 years. I mean, it's shocking that I was there that long, but I, I was in quite a few bankrupt businesses in the wake, you know. <laughs> I know, because that was a big deal you had. You had a chain of pool rooms. Oh, we had the elbow room. It's like a soprano storyline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there, man. I, I, I love London. I still have a flat there, and... and uh, Luckily, it's rented out, but, you know. How much was music in your life in London? Uh, later uh, it on? was, you know, when I first moved there, I did a lot of remixes, you know, most famously the Babylon Zoo thing, Spaceman. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And also I did Robbie Williams, the Freedom one. So those two were sort of coming in and getting those done. And I did Ash, uh, Lifeless Ordinary. So I did 
when I first moved over, I did quite a bit. Um, and then it sort of eased into a lot of stuff that never came out. Um, still working with new order through those years doing remixes and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, I did music a lot. I DJed. I had a, uh, a show on XFM That's right. for about two years. So, you know, I, I kept myself busy for sure. But Arthur, one thing that we're a very funny episode we had on social media a while back. So I want to send my son Stanley's apologies for not getting you the playlist because he was incredibly intimidated. I occasionally gave my son Stanley a lift from Brighton to London and I'd always put him in charge of the playlist because that's how I find out you know, what young people are listening to. And we did this one trip where it was just particularly good. Everything he played me was great. And I hadn't heard of anyone except for Olivia Rodrigo. And I posted it on Facebook. I just said, this is so good to hear. I'm so heartened. There's always great young music out there. And Arthur replies, hey, guy, send me that playlist. I got to know what's up in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> so I then say, say to Stanley, Stanley, Arthur Baker wants your playlist. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> my daughter, who's seven, she loves Olivia Rodrigo. I mean, she she's great. She's amazing. And the production on it is, I don't even know who produced it, but the production's amazing, you know? Let's get in talking about your production. All right, yeah, that's a good segue in there, I guess. Yes, see what we did there. Yeah. I've sort of been looking at what you did in the early days, uh, Arthur, and it was, yeah. it was you seemed to be into Philly when you were DJ back in Philly, Boston. I Philly, man. I was like Gamble and Huff for my, and, and Tom yeah. Bell. I grew up on, on Gamble and Huff and Tom Bell, and also Norman Whitfield. To me, those are the best producers ever. And, That's like the OJs, bands like that. Yeah, the OJs, Harold Melvin, you know, and, and what was great was I was just young enough, just old enough, actually, to be able to go and see all those bands. So that was sort of a... A plus of being old now was being able to see bands in the 70s. Did you have, because it's one thing that's kind of quite unusual. In England, where you're coming from musically wouldn't be unusual at all. But in America at that time, I mean, did you have much of a peer group who was into the same sort of stuff? No, no, no. I had a peer group who were into Sly and the Family Stone and Miles Davis, but they wouldn't have also been into like the Jackson 5 or... I love the Allman Brothers were my favorite band. So in my record collection, the Allman Brothers, the Jacksons, whatever, it would be, it was all messed up. And, and Funkadelic and Parliament in there? Yeah, yeah. I saw Parliament the early, actually Funkadelic before it was even Parliament. Oh, wow. Funkadelic and Parliament. I saw all those bands growing up because Boston was, the, on a tour, Boston would be right before New York. So you got every band and it was a great college town. We're doing that in January. <laughs> huh? You there? We're doing that in January, Boston to New York. Yeah. I saw Janis Joplin, Hendrix. So I saw, you know, I got to see all the, I mean, in 71, I was what? I was 16. So I was just sort of old enough to go on my own. 69, I saw the Stones. I saw, um, my first gig I ever went to was Led Zeppelin and MC5. Wow. Wow. That's interesting because from your CV, it looks like you were just disco from day one. That's where you started. No, I was disco from day one. I was also rock and roll, you know, like Cream, Disraeli Gears and, and Led Zeppelin were... You know. And this is kind of where you were you were going. You you were amalgamating yeah. those. Yeah, those well, that's what, how it turned out to be. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was a Dylan fan, and then you know, ten fifteen years later, I'm in the studio with him. So it was sort of an Al Green. So a lot of the people I ended up getting to work with, like fifteen years after the fact, were people I had been fans of. Hall and Oates. They were all bands I listened to earlier in the 70s, yeah. You had, was it your mum's cousin or something? There was a super heavy, like, Broadway arranger or something in your family? Sid Raymond, who was my mum's first cousin, he was Leonard Bernstein's arranger. He arranged West Side Story. He got a, a Grammy, Oscar, a Tony, everything for that. He also was a songwriter, and he wrote uh, Girl Watch a Theme Song. You know, uh, he wrote Smile, You're on Candid Camera. He wrote uh, Patty Duke, Cousins, Identical Cousins. I don't think that actually hit in the UK. but no. So he actually was huge. I mean, and, and that's where the music's from. But was he around? Was he an influence? No, on not you? at all. He... I never even met him. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I met his brother, Jordy, who was sort of the failure. He, he tried to do Broadway, and he just never clicked. But he I met because he, he lived in Boston when I was – growing up so I became friendly with with him and he uh he would send my father all the press clippings over the years so I have a big box of press clippings that that he had sent my dad so you know he but the other guy no and it's funny because a friend of mine Sid had been his mentor this guy was a friend of mine for a while 
until many years later. So I didn't get to actually never met Sid at all. Now he died at like 99 years. I, I, I spoke to him a few times, but I never met him. I mean, Arthur, you became sort of the, the leader, as it were, and the king of the sort of post-disco, techno, electro, dance music scene that happened half, after hip-hop came about. I think it happened hand-in-hand, hand, actually, because yeah. hip-hop as a genre came about when my good friend Michael Holman actually used the word hip-hop in an article because it was sort of Bam's thing was hip-hop had the graffiti breakdancing and music and rap, you know. So there were three parts of, of hip-hop. But when I made my first rap record, which was Jazzy Sensation, that was in 1981. And obviously there had been Rapper's Delight in 79, 80. I think the change of from sort of rap hip hop to electro hip hop would be obviously Planet Rock using a drum machine. Yeah. Because before that, all the tracks were live playing, like Doug Winbush, the guys who, who played yes. the Sugar Hill stuff. I, but Doug was my boy after that, you know, like in the 80s. Doug played on, on the Sun City record. He played bass on that. Who was the drummer on all those great It's Keith records? LeBlanc. No, before so then. You, before you then. worked with Gary. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Dennis Chambers also played on the... On Dennis Chambers, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back before this, because this is kind of where your roller coaster starts. Because you started producing your first... You were DJing around Boston, right? And then you go and produce a record with your bar mitzvah money? Yeah, with my bar... <laughs> Well, yeah. But so what I mean, so if you're a DJ and you're going into the studio to produce, what what did you do? Did, did someone have a song? I was not, I was a bad DJ, okay? I wasn't, I had good taste, but I had no patience and I would just get fed up and people didn't dance to the record, I'd just take it off, smash it and throw it on the dance floor, which uh, wasn't probably the, <laughs> the best approach. Very punk, very punk rock right there. I mean, I was definitely... <laughs> punk disco guy for sure but what happened was i decided i wanted to make a record and i had some barmas for money and i was working in a studio in boston called intermedia which aerosmith had recorded jonathan edwards sunshine there were a bunch of records i took a course there so i got in there first record i did i talked the studio owner the this guy, Dan Cole, into giving me free studio time and into putting up money for an arranger and musicians. So I did my first record was it was with a group called the New Hearts of Stone because there had been an old Hearts of Stone on Motown. I met these guys. They were pimps from Rhode Island, right? So basically they, <laughs> they put up the money for the musicians and they wrote a song called Losing You and I got the arranger in the studio time and we cut the re record and I actually got a record deal for it with Disco One Records in Canada. So that was like 77 that came out. So my first record was 77. Then I figured, okay, I've got this bar mitzvah money. You know, there was no stock that I wanted to invest in at the time. So I, I said, I'm gonna make a record. And I got a lot of musicians from Boston. We had, you know, Berkeley School of Music, great musicians, Andre Carrera, oh, right. Jeff Anderson. I had, like, great musicians. And I just said, I want to make a disco record. I want to make, like, a Philly disco record. So I went in, and I had a few friends who one keyboard player, Tony Carbone, and a singer, Larry Wedgworth, who went on to make some records on his own. And we started writing records, we uh, songs, disco songs. So I had no training, but I definitely had an idea for melody and for lyrics. So we would write these songs and we went in and we cut a whole album. And then Tom Moulton's brother, Tom Moulton was the mix guy even then. This was like ah, 79. Okay. And Tom Moulton was the big remix guy and editor and all that. His brother happened to come in the studio, hear it. They end up buying the project for me. I get totally reamed. Totally. <laughs> I got my first deal so bad that, you know, I mean, Moulton, I still respect him more than any other remixer probably to this day. But but the record came out on Casablanca. A few of the tracks were played at Paradise Garage. So it definitely gave me an entree into New York. It was called TJM, Tom and Jerry Moulton, you know. And the record still sounds amazing. He mixed it. I gave him all the multi-tracks. This is where he screwed me. I gave him the multi-tracks. He said, we're going to re-record everything. We just want to hear the parts. So I gave him all the multi-tracks, and they just used everything I had done. Couldn't you have just given them a cassette? <laughs> yeah. I mean, did you get the writing credits? No, I got the writing credit and arranging. So they didn't, you know, I mean, I got arranging and writing on the whole albums. But, you know, 
co-producer would have been nice, but you know. I just want to. I just want to just fill myself in as well as people listening as to the sort of evolution of dance music and disco remixes and where they kind of started because you know obviously Tom Moulton's a, a big name in, in, in those early days of, of and, he, and he produced Grace Jones but Walter Gibbon am I right to say Walter Gibbon did the first extended mix uh, with Double Exposure's 10% Funny you mention that I would go to New York and go to record companies and try to make connections and stuff. And there was one guy, there was a guy named David Todd, who was a remixer and he was the head of disco promotions at RCA. One night after work, we went to go have a drink and we went to this club, Galaxy 21, where Walter Gibbons was speaking. Oh, wow. And we were sitting there listening and, and we hear this track and it, the horns kept rolling and rolling and rolling and building up. And we both ran over to the DJ booth and we went and we saw it and it was one record. And we're like, what the fuck is that? And then he said, oh yeah, it's my version of, of Double Exposure 10%. So that literally was the first sort of 12 inch that came out that you could hear that it was a remix and a re-edit and all that. So he was definitely the man. I mean, beforehand, Tom was remixing and doing a lot of stuff, but this was sort of the first DJ who got a track out like that. Was Jamaica informing any of this? Was like Scratch Perry and well, stuff? Well, you know, I don't know if, if it, I know it influenced guys like Francois Kaborkian who came just a little bit later. I don't know if it influenced Walter. I mean, Doug influenced me, but that was like a little bit later, you know, that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably was, Paradise yeah. Garage and Larry definitely had a lot of Dublin influence in, in his remixes. The Peach Boys, Don't Make Me Wait, that thing. That was a big record for me and that really influential to me because it had the hand claps. It had the Doug electro hand claps that would whip around the room. And, and he took a lot of chances, which a lot of remixes didn't do. When had remixing become a thing? I'd say 77, 76. I mean, because... That's earlier than I thought. Yeah, yeah. To be yeah well, yeah. Double Exposure is 76. Yeah, yeah. It became a, and then major labels were having... People like Jim Burgess and John Luongo and Tom Savarisi. And, and there were a lot of, when disco hit, remixes started, you know, 76. Rock, you know, there were a lot of rock bands who were having remixes done, even, you know, the Stones. and. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get but to that. I, That's I later. Remember, I remember there was a brilliant record shop just off of Oxford Street in Hanway Street in London. Yes. And the West End called Contempo Records. Yeah. And a thing you would do on a Saturday was you'd go down to Contempo Records and you'd literally all stand in the street while the guy inside played yeah. the latest 12-inch import from Casablanca or yeah, wherever. Yeah. And, you know, there'll be two copies to buy. Yeah, yeah. But you must have been influenced by that with your early records too, Chant Number One and all that, right? That, that... Cut a long story short, you know, I think was one of the first sort of... 12 inch remixes from any guys other than you know doing soul music and reggae i mean i remember saying to richard burgess because i was so impressed by the desk and when you muted things and you know and i always bought disco records yeah. let's yeah. do a let's do a six minute version of this this is 1980 uh with with cut long story short and eventually the chart number one 12 inch came out the year later yeah. yeah i think we were all getting into the technology of using ams sampling and being able to repeat snare drums and, and putting it through reverbs and delays. Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. I mean, uh, no, it was exciting. I was, I, I mean, my instrument was always the board, you know, like I, I, I played a little bit of other things, but when I would do the early mixes, I was like playing the board and doing mutes and running around and, you know, it was a lot more fun than, than it is now. No, that's true. You're right. Yeah, the SSL killed the everyone kneeling on the floor with their four faders. There's a great thing in your documentary you've just made, which is a really lovely point you make about how you move to Brooklyn. And the first thing you do when you get to a neighbourhood is find the record store yeah. because that was your internet for everything, for like restaurants, bars, you know, for that's where your like minds are going to be. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I, uh, you know, I... I my first job was a record shop. I've always worked in record shops. Like I worked in four or five through the years and uh, it was a great place to meet people. And, you know, it, it definitely always helped me. And I could, and you could watch people respond to, like you were saying about Contempo records, you could see what people were reacting to. When, when we first did Planet Rock, I brought it to Music Factory and, and put it on. I had like four or five people go, what's that? One guy offered me $100 for the acetate. So, I mean, it was sort of, 
you always knew what you had if you played in and people wanted to buy it that's like immediate well i don't think we're too early to get to planet rock and, no, and absolutely and, and africa bombata and just set the little scene as far as the, what the clubs were like in new york because obviously we all know studio 54 that was very much the sort of center of disco and the clubs had changed a bit. My first knowledge of, of clubs in America was Danceteria, which is this triple kind of flawed club. That was one of the places where I would test my records. I would test them at Danceteria, Funhouse, and Paradise Garage. Yeah. Better yeah. days occasionally, too. Was the Mud Club around then? The Mud or Club no? was a little bit before that. It was still there, but it wasn't, it, you know, whatever. I had my connections at these clubs, and I would just go do the rounds. They were all very close to each other. Like, they were within, like, 10-minute, 15-minute walk. You know, they were all really close. So you could just go around, and, and, and one night you could hit every club, right? I mean, there were so many clubs. That was definitely the, the golden age of clubbing in New York, the early 80s and But if you see footage of of Studio 54 back in the mid-70s, it's basically white people dancing to black music. But is there a difference now? Is uh, is this more mixed clubs that were beginning to happen? That was not a club I went to, you know. I mean, I I went to it a few times, but I... No, it wasn't my vibe at all. There was a loft, you know, David Mancuso, the loft. That was a great club. That was like an after-hours club. But it's important for me to know, though, Arthur, is it, is it, or us, is it, are we talking about mixed race crowds here? Okay, so basically, Paradise Garage was mixed, for sure. Danceteria was, it wasn't really mixed, but anyone could get in there, right? Funhouse was really, they had a real, in the beginning, a really racist door policy. They wouldn't let black people in. It was like really bad. We started kicking it up a bit. But it was funny because it was real Latino and Italian, but it was just, they would. Like Saturday Night Fever. It was a mafia club for sure. So there were issues there. But Garage, you know, and, you know, by the end of the day, it was a lot better. But Africa Bombato, I mean, was that. Where did that relationship begin? Well, that began through Tom Silverman. We knew each other from Boston, and he had started this uh, dance music report sort of magazine, which I would do record reviews for. And um, and then he decided to do Tommy Boy, and, and he met Africa Bimbada, and uh, probably through the magazine, I would guess. And um, he said, oh, I've got this guy, Africa Bimbada. He's got three rap groups. Do you want to produce some records? And I was like, sure, because back then, if you didn't have money, you couldn't produce a record. You couldn't go to your laptop and fucking program stuff, you know? So basically, I was working in a, in a warehouse and I had no money to make records. And, you know, anything you would do, you'd have to self-finance. So I was sort of in, in not in a great situation. And then he came to me and said, you want to make some records? I go, sure. And then we went in, we did Jazzy Sensation, which was the first one, and that was with a band, live music. And then when we went in to do the next one, which became Planet Rock, the rappers all were really disappointed by the track because they, they had wanted something more like Jazzy Sensation, which was more like just an R&B groove. But it was great, and we did really well, and it kept Tommy Boy open so we could do Planet Rock. But um, they didn't get it at all, you know. The drum groove from Planet Rock is from a cro- another Kraftwerk record, isn't well, it? Yeah, well, yeah, what happened was it was uh, <laughs> Tom and Bam had come up with a demo, which was they used Trans-Europe Express as a melody. And, yeah. and then they had a bass line from I Like It by BT Express. So it was, it was a down tempo, probably about 115 BPM. You know, I wasn't blown away by it. And then I, I went to uh, the Music Factory and heard Numbers, which was Kraftwerk's new record. Yeah. And that blew me away. And I said, why don't we do that beat with Trans-Europe Express Melody? And then we went in the studio and we did it. And that we had like 10 hours in the studio and we did it. And then Tom heard it and was like, he was there when we when we did the track. And he figured it was worth another 10 hours to finish it, which we did. Was Bam a, a DJ? Bam was a DJ, but he was, you know, he was a DJ, but he was also the record selector. Back then, he had Jazzy J. Bam didn't really cut. He wasn't like Flash. Flash was cutting and scratching. He had Jazzy J who would do his cuts. So Bam would like pick the record, give it to Jazzy J, and Jazzy J would do the cuts. I mean, Bam did DJ too, but Jazzy J and they were really a team, you know. And uh, he definitely had ideas. The rappers, you know, they were not involved at all in the production, but Bam had ideas like 
there's a break in, in Planet Rock from Super Sperm, Captain Sky. And he said, I want that beat in there. And we and we programmed it and we did it. But, you know, again, Planet Rock was all played uh, live and 808 programmed. Because you, you wouldn't have had samplers then, right? There was no, unless you had a 25 grand for a fair life. No samples. Yeah, 25 grand. Try more. Like, <laughs> like it was like 100 grand at that time. <laughs> but this was a big cultural moment, wasn't it? You know, I've read in the past, and I might be wrong here, that, that Bam was the guy who was introducing, or some of the DJs at that time were introducing German electronic music in the shape of bands like Kraftwerk, or even heavy metal rock, and putting that, cross-fading that and dropping that in to cl- standard club records. He was playing Aerosmith, he was playing, he, you know, he played the Monkees, uh... He'd play anything that had a beat, basically. It was all down to what the beat was. He'd play anything if it had a funky beat. And, you know, he'd mix them together. Then people like uh, Lady Blue and my friend Michael Holman brought that stuff downtown. So it became like he was playing in the Bronx. And then they brought him downtown at Negril, this club Negril. And then all the hipsters and the art world heard all that. Fat Five Freddy was involved in that also. So that sort of was how it sort of merged into being at Danceteria because Bam from the Bronx Rivers Community Center to Danceteria and Negril, that was the journey that took the whole hip hop thing into the art world, Basquiat. Yeah, as a, as a melting pot, that early 80s New York yeah. is kind of, I don't think there's anything that's ever really touched it. Obviously, that yeah. influenced you guys in the UK and, and all over the world and Japan. It just sort of Totally, totally. It was all eyes on New York, totally. I think it was the most exciting period of to be in New York. And I, I feel like I'm, I was really lucky because I was there for that. And then I was in the UK for, you know, 88, you know, Acid and then Britpop. So I, I really feel... I don't think there are many people who actually experienced the 80s in New York and then the 90s in London. <laughs> it was such a great vibe in, in the UK then. And, McGee with the creation stories and, and, and all that. And what I, because I, I've listened to all your podcasts and him and, and Noel Gallagher and, you know, all, all those guys who I became friends with all those by being in London at that time. Uh, Arthur, I'd like to make a shout out to Rusty. Yeah, Egan. yeah, yeah. He yeah. was your guy there. I was going to say you work with Rusty, right? Rusty and I are friends. And, and you know, I, re- I respect the fact he's still out there doing it because there are very few people of our generation who are actually still have that motivation to make music and, yeah. and to do it, you know. But Rusty was the guy who was the DJ at the Blitz Club in London and, you know, with Steve Strange's partner in the late 70s. He had gone on a trip to Berlin because of Bowie and everyone wanted to, wanted to see Berlin and get a taste of the club scene there because of Bowie's validation of the place. And he brought back all, you know, this German techno music, you know, Kraftwerk and La Dusseldorf, yeah. Nina Hagen, Gina X, you know, and, and that's what was being played in, in our clubs. And I remember we all went on a trip in 81 but to New York and he DJed in the underground club along with Robert Elms. But there was definitely this German music was definitely filtering into discos. You know what's very funny you say that, but you know, Kraftwerk in I think it was 73 or 74, Autobahn was a pop hit in America, like in the top 30. But yeah. literally when I was working in a record shop, I sold so many copies of Autobahn, like because it was it was like one side the Autobahn. It was, and I always at the time. But it's a Beach Boys it's song. Beach Boys. I was just going to yeah. say Von Von on the Autobahn. Yeah. I was just you took the words out of my mouth. There. Oh, so I'm sorry, sorry, I shouldn't. But you know, Mark Caymans, I want to give him some credit because Mark was sort of the Rusty Egan of of New York in a way because he was very experimental and. He's also the one who discovered Madonna and did her first record. He he worked he was a DJ at Danceteria and he was my sounding board a lot. I'd bring him stuff right away, but he passed away a few years ago and he he was the first DJ from New York who traveled. Like to, he went to Japan like I don't even know, like in the ni- early 90s. He's, he's the first guy who did that. And why do you think people hold up Planet Rock as being this great sort of watershed moment or key seminal moment? Because it was, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but where did it reach? How did it feel? Very different at the time, man, because first of all, it was the first electronic pop record over here that merged electronics and 
the Bronx. So it merged Germany and the Bronx. So that was one thing. And it also had a ton of hooks in it, too. I mean, there were, yeah, Rock, Rock, the Planet Rock and all the cities. It was a it was a pop record that also, the mixed style of it, it was mixed like a dance record with the breaks and stuff. So, I mean, I saw that as a dance record with rap on it. And the other thing is, the instrumental, a lot of people were playing the instrumental a lot before they'd even play the rap. The instrumental got a lot of play over here. So I think it was a combination of all that stuff, you know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals, and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants, and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. But then the big one is what comes next, isn't it? It's walking on sunshine. Yeah. That's when everything goes really nuts. Well, yeah, for, for over there, yeah, because walking on sunshine did a lot better in, in the UK than Planet Rock sales-wise. That blew up. And, and that's why I, 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 you, you watch the film or you watch part of the film. So basically, I met those guys. It's so sweet. I've got to say, it's so charming. It's the, it's the record shop where you hung out when you first moved to Brooklyn. Yeah. It's so sweet. Yeah, that's the story. So we, we met and then, uh, then we went in and cut the record and it was a big hit. And, you know. Just to point out, so just to explain, it was the two brothers and, uh, and your wife. My, my ex-wife. Your ex-wife. And the two guys who ran this record shop, who then become Rockers Range. They sang the record. Yeah. It's fantastic. And it became a hit and they didn't quit their day jobs. And that and that's what the movie's about. I don't know yeah. if Gary got to see it, but yeah. So I, I did. I've done a film on, on Rocker's Revenge called On a Mission. and uh, It's really, really good. It's very moving. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, so that's what I've spent my last like three years on that film. So hopefully people will be seeing it next year because next year is the 40th anniversary of, of Planet Rock, of Walking on Sunshine, of all, of all this stuff. So, How did you write uh, Walking on Sunshine? Who, what was the process of making that record? That's an Eddie Grant song. Eddie Grant song, and I had heard it at Paradise Garage. It had been out, I think it came out in 79 or 78. It was like three years old at least, and it, and it had been an underground record. And I went in the record shop, and I had started a new label, Streetwise, which was my label. After Planet Rock, I was able to get financing for a label. And I wanted to do a track, and I uh, went in and we discussed it, and, and they said, oh, we decided Walking on Sunshine would be a good track. And I thing is, I, I didn't know any singers, so I asked the guys from the record shop who could sing it. And 
one of the guys said, oh, yeah, we sing. <laughs> Let us try it. So they did it, and, it, you know, we went in. It was a really very quick process, and we got it out really quickly. And then Tracy Bennett heard it when he was in New York. This is London Records. Yeah, he picked it up, and uh, immediately, I mean, we, we had it out probably two months after it came out in the U.S., which was really quick at the time. And uh, they took back white labels, and, and uh, Tracy got some white labels. In the film, I mean, he said that if they had made the trip to the UK, it would have been a number one record for sure. Because That's right. They turned down Top of the Pops, which to, to Gary and I, to the Americans, they don't understand. To us, the Top of the Pops! I understood, you know, but they yeah. took their day jobs. But, yeah, but the movie takes it from there, and I think it, yeah, yeah, the movie's yeah. great and uh, really excited about it. And then I did IOU and Confusion and all these other records, but I had a really bad drug problem at the time, right? So I wouldn't fly. I wouldn't get on a plane because I was like too coked out. So for like five years, I was being offered, Tony Wilson offered me the Happy Mondays to produce and I wouldn't get on a plane either. And then then finally wow. in, in 87, I stopped doing cocaine and, and I got on a plane and uh, that's when I first made it to the UK in 87. But I should like to go, but I want to jump back to New Order because you insist on writing with them in the studio, right? Which is something they've never done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A friend of mine, Michael Schamberg, he ran Factory New York, our, and he he's the one who hooked us up together. And uh, they sent me some tapes and demos, which I wish I had now, but I, I never listened to them. And then they got over here, and uh, we went in the studio. We went in Brooklyn, and we just sort of jammed and, and wrote some ideas down. And then we all sat in a room with Rob Gretton. I actually have great Polaroids of us in the room sitting there wanting to write lyrics. We're writing the lyrics together. So we finally got in the studio. It was all within a week, and we wrote Confusion and, and, and Thieves Like Us. And um, unfortunately, whenever I got to work with Barney back then, he would be in New York for like a week, and he would just cane it. So his throat was always fucked up. So we, we had issues with that. But we did Confusion, and then they took the tape of Thieves Like Us, and I hadn't heard from him in quite a while. And then one day I'm in a club, I think it was a tunnel, and I hear this beat and I'm like, man, that sounds like one of my beats. So I climb up to the DJ booth and there it is, Thieves Like Us. And I did get a writing credit, but that was sort of a surprise. I, I didn't even know they had finished it. Just talk about the ways that artists started to be able to sell themselves. You know, there were like four key ways, wasn't there? You want to get your record on the radio. Yeah. You can go out and play live. you got to make a video for MTV. And then the other thing became, you got to do a 12-inch. I remember we were trying to push the record company to do 12 inches initially. And then when it came to us putting True out, and I said, look, you know, we don't want to do a 12-inch remix of this. They were like, what are you talking about? You've got to, because yeah. this was how you did it. But you became the king of those mixes for the big names. I'm talking about, you know, Springsteen and Cindy Lauper. And did you actually meet Bruce? Did he ever play a part in that? What happened was I was doing a lot of work for Columbia and Epic at the time. I, I worked with this group face to face and I, I was really connected in there. Cindy Lauper was my first remix there. And, and Jellybean had done a remix, which they, she didn't like. So I went in and did a remix. They loved it. Cool. It came out. Through that, Joe McEwen, who was at a CBS, he was in A&R guy, he hooked me up for the Springsteen thing. I went in to Power Station where Springsteen worked anyway. He didn't. He wanted us to mix it there because he didn't want the tapes leaving Power Station, which was an interesting thing. This is the Born in the USA <laughs> album, isn't it? What's that? You're Born in the USA. And, and literally, he came by to come by and, and watch us with the remix. Bob Clearmountain had been working with him and Bob Clearmountain introduced us to the room and showed us around. And then like a half an hour later, the AC went out. Springsteen shows up. There's no AC. We have fans and in there trying to keep us cool. And he goes, let me get some beer. So he goes out and gets a case of beer. He, he went out, got it, brought it in and we're drinking beer and doing the, uh, the remix. And he um, ended up loving the remix. And after that, Basically, I get a call from McHugh and he goes, you know, Bruce's next single is Cover Me. And he had written that and recorded it for Donna Summer, right? So basically, he had done it too fast or something, but he didn't want to go wow. back in and recut it. So he said he doesn't want to play it live because he doesn't like what he did with it. He needs some ideas for the arrangement of what he could do. So why don't you go in and do a remix? So I did a remix and added delays and a new intro. And then he ended up playing it 
partially my arrangement. I went to see him at, at Giant Stadium, and he started the song, cover me, cover me, you know, with the delays and stuff. And I was like, well, he, he definitely listened to the remix. Mm-hmm. And then I did one in the USA. So I did the three mixes. And, and when Dancing in the Dark, which was the first one, when that death threats on the radio why were, yeah that was yeah they were someone should kill this guy for fucking with bruce's music like and on on the big radio stations in new york it was so controversial people were so tied into this idea of bruce being this pure artist who wouldn't let anyone you know and, and you know, all right this is the judas moment <laughs> with bob dylan it's obama yeah. getting you lie you know <laughs> But also because I wondered about this, because it gets to the point where, you know, you're remixing, or, but especially when you're doing the 12 inches the extension, for a lot of the more traditional sort of rock artists, there must be an element of them going, what the hell is this? What is going you know, on here? You know what, though? I would always keep the song, though. That was the thing. Remixes later on would just trash the song. So at least yeah, I kept exactly. the song, which to me, I would judge a, a, something I was going to remix if I liked the song. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I can sample that vocal and make a hook out of it. It was more like, do I want to listen to this song a thousand times, right? Because when you're doing a remix, you're listening over and over and over. Well, I couldn't <laughs> remix anything I really didn't like because it would be like painful, right, to do that. that. That's why I never really did a lot of albums that were successful because you're buying into a group and they're all their songs. And if you don't like them, what's more painful than having to listen to a song over and over again that you don't like? You're absolutely right. You, and you've touched on something there because I, I did wonder because obviously, you, you know, your integrity is clearly <laughs> very high because there was an element, wasn't there, in the 80s? There was a slight money for old rope thing, wasn't there? No More Lonely Nights, the McCartney one. I did that purely for the money. <laughs> I got 30 grand. I own the studio. So, you know, I mean... I love some of his earlier solo stuff was amazing, but that song wasn't it, you know? I mean... Did you keep the Gilmore guitar solo? There's a Gilmore guitar solo on it. Did you keep it? Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I'm now doing a series with Demon Records called Dance Masters, which is 80s remixes and, and focusing on, on remixes. And I put one out, Shep Pettibone, Dance Master. Jelly Bean next, and then I'm going to do one. And when I listen back to some of the mixes I did, I'm like, nah, I, I, I don't want to <laughs> bury this. <laughs> what was your USP? What did people want when they wanted an Arthur Baker mix? Why would they go to you as opposed to Jelly Bean? What was your thing? I think mine was a bit more radical than his, and, and he was really pop. You know, he was a very pop remixer. And his box set is going to be amazing because he had a lot. Madonna. Of, you know, that, that, that'll that be out next year. But for me, I don't know. I was more radical. And, you know, I proved myself as a producer. So I went the opposite way. Most people went DJ to remixer. I went DJ producer remixer. So people hired me because they loved IOU and they loved uh, – Planet Rock or Walking on Sunshine or Looking for the Perfect Beat or those records. So they wanted some of that, right? They wanted it to be a little more radical, but they knew that I would respect the song. And that's what I did. And, you know, most of the times I didn't have issues. I mean, when I did, I think my most radical remix of a, of a big act is probably one of my favorite remixes ever, which was Too Much Blood oh, yeah, yeah. by uh, the Rolling Stones. Because I, I took Bill Lyman's bass off and I put this guy I had, Brian Rock, who also played on Cover Me. He was in this band called Mojo Naya, a reggae band. And I used him on, on Cover Me and Too Much Blood. And the Stones, they loved it. I mean, they loved the Too Much Blood remix. And then Bill <laughs> left. <laughs> That's not why Bill left, is it? There's not a lot of remixes who get in a live bass player. That's why I'm just going to gloss over the fact you've never got me in, Arthur. But... Um... <laughs> But I, I guess, Arthur, you know, your big drum sound was very, you know, key yeah, to what... the big drum sound too. But, you know, different mixes, like Cover Me, I, I went really for more of a reggae dub thing, for sure, because of the song. I just made it more that. And to me, that's my favorite of the of the Springsteen mixes, remixes. That's my favorite one. If, if I can get it from my box set, that's the one I would use, because I think it's the purest, it's the most sort of experimental changing the bass line, but keeping the whole song. Jocelyn Brown had been a background vocal on that, which he didn't use. And when I put the faders up, when I got the tape, I'm like, 
that's Jocelyn Brown. And I called her up. I said, Jocelyn, did you do a demo for Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> oh, yeah, I think I did that you know, a few years ago. So I used her vocal all over it, you know. And um, one time I had an issue with Fleetwood Mac because I actually met Lindsey Buckingham and he gave me the tape for uh, Big Love. I went to his house in, in L.A. And that wasn't common, you know, to, to, to actually meet the artist. I met Rico Classic when I did Hello Again. I met some of them, but I went to his studio and he played me the tape and we went through everything. And then when I went back to mix it, there was no really good bass line on that. So I put a synth bass line, which was sort of pedaling through, droning through. And also I put um, Stevie Nicks had been all over the thing, but not on their version. And I was like, well, I'm going to use her vocal because it how's upon a hill. You know, she was she was really wailing. So then I put her in and I made it more like a duet. And when I turned it in, they were like, uh, well, it's amazing. But Lindsay didn't want her vocal on there. I go, well, if you didn't want it, you should have erased it off the fucking tape. Yeah. Oh, mate, you don't get involved in the Fleetwood Mac domestics. You know? Basically, I ended up doing a dub, House Upon a Hill dub. That one, number one, that was probably the first... I would say that was the first house remix of a rock record ever. That was because that was 87, I think. I think that was the mm -hmm. first house remix of a rock track. So that's another thing to come to, by the way, because when the whole house thing happened, which is just real straight, four on the floor, you know, disco-based thing, that yeah. must have really changed the remix landscape yeah. for you, or did it? Well, yeah, it did, because it made it so that, you know, you could just stick a 4-4 a kick drum underneath anything and, you know, basically put some percussion down and it, you could make it a dance track. But the thing was, the first time I ever made it to Europe, I went to meet him, and that was in 87. And I was meeting people from all over Europe, and they said, your records are great, but you should just put a straight kick underneath. <laughs> and piano. Dunganga, danga, 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 danga. <laughs> no, but they were right, actually, because there were a lot of records I was doing that was more like, you know, hip-hop-y, up-tempo mm. hip-hop. And Europeans couldn't fucking dance to it, you know, because they needed that straight kick. And they were actually... I didn't listen. I was like, nah, that's bullshit. And then house music came and that was the secret of house was just straight kicks, you know? Let's talk about Sun City. Yes. Because this was a massive record. Uh, we had little Stephen on a couple of months ago. Sun City was a year of my life. And um, yeah, it was a great project, man. I, I mean, the people I got to work with, I mean, to... It's insane. Yeah. Peter Gabriel coming into the studio and literally just, I mean, people would show up and I'd be there and, you know, I'd be like, oh, hey, Peter. And, you know, what do you want me to do? And they'd go in and you can just sort of direct them on stuff. So I, you know, I was really, you know, I, I did a lot of work on that, on that record. So, uh, I mean, just the housekeeping alone. I mean, it's, uh, there's so many, I mean, forget Band-Aid. There's like hundreds of singers, to, you know. Yeah. No, just the Winnie Bagos. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was hardcore. Who would show up? And, and you know, that uh, it was a great project. The only thing with Steve is he wasn't a late night guy. You know, he would like nine o'clock. He liked structure. He'd be in there early and go till nine. And, you know, you guys know that was 85, man. Nine yeah, o'clock. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's when the shit started kicking off. Yeah. And, I, you know, I had Tom Lord Algae, Chris Lord Algae, and, and they were the engineers. They all worked for free, but they didn't work for free, if you know what I mean. They were like, you know, <laughs> you, you ought to sort them out and to, to keep them up at night. So it was it was crazy days. And, and one day I had George Clinton, Bobby Womack, Eddie Kendrick, and David Ruffin follow me in to my bathroom. Okay. Wow. Uh <laughs> Brilliant. Enough said. I won't. I won't continue. Uh, I mean, it was a mental year. The fact we made a great record, brilliant record, brilliant record. We yeah. changed. We were able to actually make a change in the world. That was a one-off. And of course, funnily enough, the thing is, Arthur, is that you weren't in any danger of playing Sun City because you wouldn't get on the plane. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you got a United Nations award for that record. It was amazing because, I, as a kid, I was very political and and. And we had family in South Africa, and my dad threw oh, wow. threw them out of the house because they were racist. They came to visit us when I was probably eight or nine. And I'll never forget my dad telling me to get out of the fucking house, you know. So basically, uh, to me, that's my high point in my in my career. Was able to do that. To be honest with you, I mean, 
you know, on a, on a overall creative and the importance of it, you know. But talking as your role as as musical Judas, and in, you, know, <laughs> you, you actually you worked with Dylan. You know, you did the famous, you know, what, what album, the Empire, Empire Burlesque. Burlesque. Uh, Burlesque. Yeah. Which, you know, people were a little shocked by when Dylan put this album out. But uh, how was your relationship with him? Well, it was great. It was great. And, and it was really good until I was in jail for the second album. So I couldn't do it. <laughs> Literally, I what? got arrested. That's in my book. I'm saving that story. But basically, no, Bob yeah, and I- like, I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> No, but what I will say is Bob, I mentioned in, in his book in Chronicles, which, you know, that's another high point. If I had like four or five high points in my career that he mentioned me in his book and about I requested a song to end the album. I said to him, we should have an acoustic song because, you know, we're putting all these bells and whistles on this record. And I think your fans would really love an acoustic song at the end of the album. And he was like, thought about it. And then he, the next day he came in the studio and he played this song, Dark Eyes. He played it twice and that was it. I figured it was an old song because when I had first met Bob, he played me like 50 songs, like boom, boom, boom on his cassette player. I never knew. And then when Chronicles came out, he tells a story of how after I said that, he went back to the hotel and wrote that song that night. And we recorded it. It was the first time and second time he had ever played it i mean he had written it but he had never played it before so hang on so the real thing here arthur is think about how does this feel that you actually got bob dylan to write a song if, well gary does not ask gary all the time will he write me a song will he fuck you're not my muse but what was what was that like did bob's songs on the demos were they just him and an acoustic guitar he had started the record right the only thing we that i was actually there for the actual tracking of the entire thing we did a lot of overdubs but was uh when the night comes falling from the sky sly and robbie were there and they played that down live a lot of this stuff was taking stuff he had already recorded with like stan lynch and you know tom petty's group and all these different people and sort of trying to make an album out of it so that's what it was like and it was sort of going through watching him um writing lyrics and changing lyrics and writing a lyric and going in and singing it and then not liking it and ripping it up and going in and writing. You know, he was like writing as we were recording, which was sort of interesting. That's amazing. So you were party to his process. He would take everything home. Like he'd draw a doodle and he'd take things and you couldn't even get like one of his doodles. He would pack everything up at the end of the session. <laughs> and you mentioned Daryl Hall, Horton Hall and Oates. Yeah. You, you did the big Bam Boom album yeah. with uh, Out of yeah. Touch on it. We both love Daryl Hall, don't we, Guy? I mean, well, got to get him on the show. No, Daryl was great, man. I had been a big fan. And then and then um, Tommy Mottola, which that's a whole other episode. He, uh Tommy became a manager and then he wanted me to work with Hall and Oates. Um, and I produced with Daryl swept away for Diana Ross. So I had worked with him, but then he wanted me to go in the studio with John and sort of vibe. And we, and we went in the studio and John had played me all these demos, which I didn't really rate any of them. And then he said, Oh, I have this track. I think might be good for the stylistics. Cause I had signed the stylistics to Streetwise to my label and he plays me this track and I'm like, dude, you guys got to do this. This is a number one record. Tommy will have me fucking killed if, if I do this on the stylistics, you know, <laughs> and it was out of touch, you know, oh, I mean, wow. John wrote the Great chorus song. about a touch and then, and then Daryl took it and, and, and did the verses. But one of my favorite songs to this day, out of touch. I love that song. Great song. So uh, we should briefly touch because uh, we've been keeping you a while. So you became a movie mogul. Arthur. I love doing music. I still do, but it's obviously not doing music for, as a living because, you know, it just wasn't paying bills and, and, uh, and I'm not really that turned on. Well, put it this way. No one's offered me anything great to work on. So I'll leave it at that. Other than the, the, uh, the new order remix I did be a rebel, which I think is a great remix. I will, I, I will toot my own horn on that one, but, um, yeah, so I started doing movies, and I did one called Finding the Funk, which was with Nelson George. He directed it, which is the history of funk, which right. we did with VH1. And then I did the 808. Apple Beats bought that, and that you can get that online. That's one of those things that's such an obvious thing to do. It's, it's, like, it's brilliant that you got there first. It's really think, a cool know. film, because we, we really did get to interview all the people that you would want. We have the Beastie Boys on it. We have, you know, Pharrell... 
even Phil Collins talks about the 808. And, you know, it's a, it's a really cool movie. The one that's closest to my heart, which is the, the Rocker's Revenge story on a mission, which is a human interest story, which I directed just because it didn't start as doing a film. It just started, let's film the sessions. And then I started working on it and, uh, and while doing an album. So anyone out there with any thoughts of directing a film around the making of an album, it's the dumbest thing you could ever do. You want to be listening to the music and make sure that's right. But then you have to make sure you're getting everything down on film and literally I did both. And that is like such a bad idea, but I had a friend, uh, Shane Nicholson, who's helped me sort of pull it together. And uh, I'm really happy with it. And hopefully it'll be in South by Southwest this year and be out for 2022. And talking to the drum machine, Arthur, what do you think was the first record that officially had a drum machine as, instead of a real drummer? I think Sly and the Family Stone, Family Affair, he used it. Really? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't use them early on, but I think it might have been Sly... Timmy Thomas, yeah. um, why can't we live uh, together? That was an 808. Well, that was a chord. But see, I went to Japan. This is a, this is a documentary that we already have filmed, but we haven't. We have to edit it and do it. I met Mr. K, the owner of, of Roland, who actually developed the 808. And in the 808 film, there's a bit in there, but I actually went to Roland Museum and played on all the drum machines and we filmed that and that that got to get out there but he had the early one he had the one that sly had used that, that i think it may have, i'm not sure if it was a boss or something but there were other there were machines before roland but he had been involved in all of them like in the in the organ remember there'd be a i was going to say because they that because home organs had had a drum machine since you know the year dot ace the the rhythm ace i think sly was a rhythm That's ace. Right, right but so there were people using them before but for the 808 it was um yellow magic orchestra used it first and then we were the second and what do you think of the dance scene now what do you think of the remix dance well the scene remix now? scene i don't think they're really i mean i guess there's a remix scene and people are remixing pop records that you know my daughter at seven will listen to Dooley Lipa Lupa Dua Lipa don't my son that has a go at me for getting her name wrong as well yeah there is <laughs> you know I, I have to say Ed Sharon and Ned, there are you want to be negative because we're old and we want to be like ah uh, uh, so you know I was always of the of the mindset that if someone can make a great pop record and millions of people want to hear that record I have to respect it. I don't have to like the record. And I have to give respect to those the artists that are doing it because they know what kids want to hear, you know? I mean, I'd have fights with people over David Guetta because people would go, oh, he's a hack, whatever. I'd say, listen, the guy is making music that millions of people want to hear. Maybe it's not my taste, but I have to respect the fact mm -hmm. that he knows how to relate to people. And to be honest, making pop music is relating to as many people as you can. You know, I can't do that now. I don't do that. I mean, but uh, I think the remix scene, you know, it's more now if you get a hit record, a big pop record, and you can do something cool with it, you know, um, they're not calling me for that, but they're calling DJs who are like current hot DJs and you got the Diplos doing really cool things. You know, he, I mean, they, they changed their track. You know, there's a lot of people making cool music, and obviously dance music is pop music now. Hip-hop music is pop music. Mm -hmm. You can't separate it. That's what pop music is now. Rock and the other stuff is a subgenre. Pop music yeah, is now dance right. and, and, and hip-hop, you know. Olivia Rodrigo, that, you know, she rocks out a bit. Yeah. I think those are amazing records, you know. I'm like... People like Mark Ronson who can kind of merge the two, who can work with artists. Mark can do that because he has he has the the background, but he's young enough to uh, to be able to relate to that. And as I said, Diplo can do it, and there there are other people doing it too. But you know, I'm happy with where I'm at. You know, I can make my own records and do retro sounding records. And uh, Arthur, I think the thing is is that no one can take away from you what you achieved, yeah. and that that's you know a huge legacy that you've left. Yeah, I try to explain that to my daughter at seven, but I think <laughs> you know, I see, <laughs> there you see that beat that that was a beat like I made it like forty years ago, and she's like, ah. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Yeah, Arthur's been great. She's gonna do. Her music, her musical mind already is insane. Literally with beats, it's crazy. It's that side of the family, man. It's literally nuts what she does. It, she plays drums and I mean, it's nuts, but 
I don't really want her to be a singer for sure. (laughs) (laughs) There's someone at the door, so that's a good cue for us to say thank you. I really enjoyed this. Uh, Arthur, lovely to see you, man. I'll say, I miss you being around. I'm going to be in town December 10th at Jazz Cafe for for Rocker's Revenge. We'll try and get down to that. We'll see you then. Okay, man. All right. All right. All right. Take care, guys. Cheers, Arthur. Later. Well, he's still got the energy, hasn't he? He's a ball of energy, that man. <laughs> he has. I, I, I think I got somewhere close to the way he, he must have operated in a studio. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, physically, you know, for people who haven't seen Arthur, he's a big guy. I mean, he's, he was bigger then as well, with the, all that leonine yeah. hair and that huge beard. He, he, he was kind of Hagrid, wasn't he, really? In that? Yes. <laughs> but you know what? It did occur to me that actually he was like the Quentin Tarantino of music. You know how Tarantino got all of his kind of his Google would have been the video store that he worked in and he got everything from that's there. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a lovely point he made because there isn't that focal point now. It's like if you're in a new town, you go to the record shop and there's the people who, you know, who will know what you're interested in, where it's at. Anyway. Yeah. Now you just anyway, that down was at your phone. Yeah. <laughs> I kept trying to get a word in edgeways, but it post bad anyway. I know. It's just like being at home, really. We, um, yeah. We'll see you next week. We with will, the- with someone else. <laughs> what else can I say? It'll be someone else. But it's a, it's a pleasure doing this, isn't it, Guy? We do enjoy it. It is a pleasure. No, we love it. And, we lo- and I'm, we're now just so learned on our chosen field. Yes. Well, that we're going to start, you know, I'm going to start becoming a professional pub quizzer, I think. There was a lot of moments in that interview, wasn't there? Because the sound quality was so bad that you couldn't hear us speaking. That it became like an 80s 12-inch, is it? No, 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 no. I just need to talk, talk, talk to you. <laughs> anyway, nice seeing you again, guys. We will see everyone else next week, and uh, it's good night for me. It's good night for me. Thanks, everyone. Bye. <laughs>